This morning, uh, we're beginning a new series called Bring in the Harvest. Take your Bibles and turn to Malachi 3, 7 through 12. me, I'm going to be turning the microphone off numerous times throughout this message to call for drink water or something because, well, it's that time of the year. It's not the most wonderful part of this time of the year, but it is that time of the year. Bring in the harvest. This is going to be a six-week study. We're going to look at giving. Uh, it, the harvest is, is what we have. It's what we have to bring in. It fits with the season, of course. But there's more to it than just that. And we're going to look at six different aspects of giving over these next six weeks all the way through Thanksgiving uh, <clears throat> toward the end of uh, November, which y'all know when Thanksgiving is. A few quotes on giving. Excuse me, I really do apologize for all the different noises that are going to come across the microphone this morning. C.S. Lewis said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. James McDonald, uh, if you did Vertical Church, you're very familiar with James McDonald now and how he doesn't like to pull any of his punches, said, giving the first tenth of all God has given you is the on-ramp to the highway called generosity. And then Ronnie Floyd, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention and pastor of Cross Church in uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, said living on 90% with God involved will go much further than living on 100% without God involved. We're looking this morning at giving obediently. And where do we find that obedience? Where do we find the command? We're going to look at this passage that has been preached on numerous times. Uh, don't know that I'll tell you too much that you don't already know, but hopefully you hear it in a different way and we begin to apply it in a different way. And this message is for everybody who can hear me. If you already give 10% plus, this message is for you. It is an encouragement to you about why you give. And it's the, the, the application of the scripture that you're already fulfilling. If you don't give 10%, if you don't give an offering above that, this message is for you. It's the explanation, the biblical explanation of why you should and what will happen if we do. Read with me Malachi 3, 7 through 12. Since the days of your fathers you have turned from my statutes, you have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how, are, how can we return? God speaks up again and says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You're suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that you will not... Excuse me, so, you will not, so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine in your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of armies. God in this passage is very clear about what his people are supposed to do with their possessions. And we're going to go through this passage 
And we're going to see what God was telling the people. But then we're going to see how that applies to us today. And I'm already going to tell you, those of you who are thinking, well, we're not an Old Testament people, we're all a New Testament people. Well, I've got you covered. Uh, we're going to talk about that here in a few minutes. But let's look at what God was telling them then first. In verse 7, we see the depth of their problem and their call to repentance. God is bringing up something here that was, he's, he's going to focus on one aspect, but there's a broader issue here of disobedience by his people. Disobedience, and this disobedience specifically, was a way of life for his people. He tells them at the beginning, since the days of your fathers you have turned, around for, uh, turned away from my statutes. And he ain't talking about their daddies that they've been, they, 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 they know. He's talking about all the way back to your forefathers, all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even if he's not going that far, he is certainly going back as far as the Exodus, when Moses had to deal with a stubborn and stiff-necked people. Give you a little time frame of when this is happening. Malachi is prophesying in around uh, four to five hundred BC, uh, end of the the late, the big four hundreds. It would be the early four hundred and eighty something, seventy something, sixty something BC. The Israel has already been in captivity in Babylon, and they have already been sent home. Nehemiah has already built the wall and preached. Ezra has already preached to the people. So these are, uh, this is a prophecy coming after that. They're home, finally. They've built the wall. The city is fortified, and yet God is telling them, y'all have never been obedient. You have never followed me the way you should have. It has been a way of life for you to disobey, yet, yet, the opportunity to, to repent is ever-present. He says, you, you, you've turned away from my statutes, you've not kept them, but the next sentence, return to me, and I will return to you. It is the way of God throughout the Old Testament. It is the way of God throughout the New Testament, and it is the way of God in your life right now today for him to say, you still disobey me, yet repent Return to me, and I will return to you. We can stop right here, and we can spend a while on the fact that if you are not experiencing God in your life at this moment, it's not because God isn't active. It's not because he does not desire to affect your life and to be a part of your life. It's because you have not repented and returned to him so that he may return to you. But the opportunity is there. And that's what God prefaces this with this this whole thing you 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 disobey you are disobedient you always have went been and yet i still wait on you to come back to me and repent do you hear the message church that we can always return the thing is the people at this time had no idea oh thank you i can see so much better now i appreciate that had no idea or at least they claimed to have no idea what god was talking about look at their first question you ask, how can we return? People didn't even realize their sin. And this is probably a legitimate question. This is uh, very likely, and now this is all prophecy, right? This isn't 
a, a, a conversation that actually occurred. This is what God is telling Malachi to say to the, to the people. So God is anticipating the questions the people might ask. But in this question, we get the idea that the people probably would have asked this question in, if not entire innocence, in uh, a large degree in innocence. What are, what are we doing? Because they would have just looked at the fact that we're no longer in captivity. We're home. We've built houses. The walls built. The city's fortified. Uh, the, the temple is on its way to being rebuilt if it's not already rebuilt by this time. We're, we're, everything's going okay. How in the world? What's he talking about? What, how have we not uh, repented? How do we need to return? See, but they knew. They knew something was amiss. They looked around, the crops weren't producing. And the grapes, we're gonna, he's going to talk about this toward the end of the passage. The grapes, the phrase he uses is miscarrying. That's the image they get. He gives the, the grapes get small, they produce little fruit, but before they can mature and be useful, they drop off the vine. Nothing's working out in the fields the way that it's supposed to. They recognize the absence of blessing the people do. They know something is wrong, because that's what Malachi is all talking about throughout this passage, the various ways that uh, the disobedience of the people from the priests on down are corrupting their land, corrupting the promise. They see the absence of blessing, but they are missing the absence of God. They look around and say, things aren't right. What's going on? What's wrong? Why are we not producing the fruit we need to? We need to fix the vines. We need to fertilize the soil. It's not enough water. We need to use different implements. We need to do things differently. We need to change this and change that so that we can produce fruit in our fields. In fact, what they were missing was not implements and fertilizer and water and all these other things. They were missing the very source of the blessing, the very source of the fruit to begin with, which was God. And they didn't recognize it. They didn't miss his absence in all of this. And so, because they didn't miss his absence, they were arrogant about it. There is this arrogant tone in this question. Though it is, I said, innocent, it was at least, if not innocent, it was confused. They, they weren't really sure what God was talking about. We're good, God. What, what, what could you be talking about? So that arrogance led them there to question their need to repent. How can we return? And he says in verse 8, uh, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do, uh, how do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. Now, I put that last bullet point in the wrong spot. So you can just go ahead, Pat, and I'll come back to it later, and you won't have to show it. Go ahead to verse 8. You rob God, God says. You, you are stealing from him. That shocked them. I mean, th th think, about, think about a thief. I mean, let's just, let's just think about uh, what was the movie? Cary Grant and uh, Grace Kelly, To Catch a Thief, right? That was the name of who, who knows that movie I'm talking about? It's a great movie. One of the best movies ever made. Partly because, you know, it's Cary Grant and Grace Kelly. They couldn't make a bad movie, I don't think. 
But the, the whole, think about how Cary Grant would break into those places and, and take that stuff. And, and all the, you know, there's so many heist movies, uh, all the Oceans movies, both the original and the, the later, later ones. <clears throat> all that goes into to, to thievery, even, even technology and, and everything you have to do and how you have to slip in under somebody's nose and be there at the right time and break through all these things. Now, of course, when, they, when the people of Israel heard God say, you robbed me, they're not thinking Ocean's 11 uh, or 12 or 13. Uh, they're, they're not thinking in that way, but they, they are thinking, we know, I mean, you, you end up seeing when people rob you. you, you, you it's obvious when people rob you. God, you're God. How do we rob you? We can't sneak into your house where you don't see it. You're, they understood God's omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience. He, they understood that he was everywhere and saw everything and could do everything. So this idea of, of God telling them, you're robbing me, we can't rob you, God. We can't, you don't have a house to sneak into and a window to break out and an alarm system to turn off and a dog to get to lick your hand and you don't have all these things that we would have to do in order to rob somebody and they're totally missing the point I mean the very idea is uh, unimaginable to them but the fact is that we rob God when we don't give him what he's due they were thinking of taking things from him and God is talking about the fact that you don't give him what he deserves what he asks for or what he requires we see in this passage an attitude that the attitude toward their possessions was a major indicator of their relationship with God or of the health of their relationship with God the fact that they didn't see his absence in the absence of blessing the fact that they didn't understand that by not giving him what he required not giving him what he deserved they were robbing him the fact that they missed that totally was an indicator of the fact that they did not recognize the problem in their relationship with God they didn't understand the fact that their possessions are a barometer of what is going on in their spiritual life they didn't realize that their stuff wasn't theirs they didn't remember, though they talked about it at the time, and they, talked, uh, they celebrated the Passover. They knew the stories of the Exodus. Some of them might even at this point still remember being in captivity or at the very least had heard firsthand accounts from parents or grandparents about being in captivity and now being home. They knew what it was for God not to be around, for God to have, for them to literally have nothing, and for the God to then provide everything for them and yet they still thought it was theirs somehow and not God's to begin with Billy Graham said a checkbook is a theological document it will tell you who and what you worship and the people at this time were worshiping themselves and that's what we see in this passage verse 9 God goes on you, you rob God by not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. And this is the bullet point that wasn't uh, in the right spot up there. Uh, tithes would be, it's literally a 10%. Offerings or contributions, as my translation says, is anything above that. And anything above that is intended as worship. 
It, this is what we, this is obedience, the tithe. This is duty to some extent or to a very great extent. But anything above that, I'm doing this out of worship because I love you because I cannot believe you gave me the other 90%. I can't believe you gave me any of this. So here's the 10% you want, but God, I'm going to worship you today with even more than that. Very, very biblical concept when we get to the New Testament. So your robbery results in a curse, he says. You, you are robbing me because you're not bringing the full tenth into the storehouse. You're not making the, the, the tithes and the contributions. And you are suffering under a curse. Yet you are still robbing me. Listen to that. They, they, their, their, their robbery, their disobedience persists despite the curse that they see. Why? Because they saw the absence of the harvest, but they didn't see the absence of God. They saw the physical part of it and blamed the weather and blamed the bugs, but the fact was God was not there. God was not with them because they were disobedient. Their curse is a failure of producing fruit in the land. That's what they were not seeing. That, that was their curse. They were not producing fruit. Do you hear some foreshadowing here? Do you hear some New Testament echoes of things that haven't been said yet? Not producing fruit. We'll get there. And then he says in verse 9, when, he's, when he says in verse 9, you are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, the word he uses, the word God uses there, the word that God tells Malachi to use in his prophecy, is the word goyim. That's the word that God uses and the Old Testament uses anytime it's referring to Gentile nations, not the nation of Israel. That's not the term that is used for Israel. It's a different term for Israel. Goyim means Gentile nation, not Jewish. Do you hear what God is saying in this passage in verse 9? You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation that doesn't really belong to me, the whole nation who clearly is not mine, the whole nation who is not worshiping me, this group of people who claim to be my people but do not act like my people, are not living by, like my people because they're not obeying me as I have told them to obey, the whole nation has strayed. This is why we study Greek and Hebrew. This is why how it says it in the original language matters because we hear God declaring, passing judgment, we hear God making a very clear statement, you claim to be my people. If you're my people, why are you not doing what I tell you to do? And your robbery results in a curse, a curse you've lived with, a curse that you don't even recognize, a curse that you don't at least recognize the reason for, and you continue to suffer under a curse. But how, how are we going to fix that? See, the beauty of God. God never condemns or never brings out sin that he does not offer the opportunity to repent from it. Or to put it, maybe as Paul put it in Corinthians, no temptation has befallen you 
that in the temptation there's not also a way out. There is no issue that we come to that God does not say, I will provide a way out for you, and even if you sin, you may return to me. You can always return to me. And so he says in verse 10, how the people can return to him. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. Whole indicates here, when he says to them, he's already said the whole nation is doing this, the whole goyim, the whole group of people who are not following me do this. When he says bring the whole tithe, indicates that some of the people were withholding a portion or all of their tithe. Somebody say, uh-oh. Because you know where I'm about to go with this. Maybe they didn't like what the priest was doing. Well, I'm going to withhold my tithe. Maybe they didn't like the, the songs that the, uh, the, the, the choir leaders were doing in the temple. Well, I'm going to withhold my tithe. Maybe they didn't like the fact that they traded out the, uh, the uh, nice, nice smoothed out uh, terracotta pews that they used to have with, with stone seats. Well, I'm going to withhold my tithe. Whole indicates some people were withholding their money because they didn't like what was going on. Or maybe they just didn't want to give. Maybe they just didn't feel like they could give. There are a lot of reasons why people don't give. None of them good. Because he says, bring the full tent into the storehouse so there may be food. Test me. It is very rare that God says, test me in the Bible. Only a handful of times. One or two, maybe. Here is one of them. And it, over and over and over the Bible says, do not test the Lord your God. Do not test me. Do not test him. Yes, absolutely. We are not supposed to test him with our uh, griping. We are not supposed to test him with our disobedience. We are not supposed to test him with our, uh, our, our failure to, uh, to follow him. No, don't test him that way because we will learn uh, what it is to fail a test. But we are to test him with our obedience. If God says he will do something because of our action, he will do it. All of his promises are yes, we are told, in Jesus. But when God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. So when God says, bring the whole tithe, bring the offerings, and see if I do not do for you the very thing I have promised to do for you. Test him, and then watch him pass the test. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. That, that without measure phrase there, there's been some discussion about exactly what does it mean. Well, the floodgates of heaven, we start there, open the windows, and it could mean literally rainfall. Rainfall is very important for crops, but rainfall at the right times. So we don't want just the floodgates to open up, and we've seen floodgates open up in Louisiana, haven't we, and in uh, East Texas. We know what that means when the heavens open up and they don't close. So it, it's possible that's what he's talking about, but more likely what he's talking about is opening up the floodgates, the windows to his blessings. Everything that he has is available if we are obedient. And then he says, uh, when he opens those floodgates, when that part of the test he, uh, he passes, 
that he will pour out blessing for you without measure. Literally, that phrase means up unto and beyond the point of need. He will, it will uh, uh, decrease or increase beyond our need. It, it really just means we will have more than enough, more than what we need. We will be looking around going, how in the world can we have what we have? Now, lest you think I'm about to step off into some health and wealth stuff, nope, just hold on. And then further, verses 11 and 12, we see the promise, the full promise for obedience. What opening the floodgates looks like. For the people there, he says, I will rebuke the devourer. This would be the locusts that would come up for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your, and the, and your vine and your field and not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of armies. You know what the locusts would do? The locusts could lay eggs when they were there. And then, over time, those eggs could get washed if it happened to rain or blown into fields and they could accumulate and where there may be a few thousand locust eggs because of certain circumstances in the weather and the way things work together you could go from a few thousand locust eggs to a few million locust eggs and they would all hatch at the same dadgum time and whereas you might have a few thousand okay the birds can take care of you get a few million nope and you have a problem. And that's the kind of thing that they were do talking about. It would ruin the produce of their land. He says, the promise is, the land will produce fruit. You will be able to do the things that you are expected to do. Your land, you will get the blessing of the land. The land, the land. That should be a phrase that means something to us when we talk about the Old Testament. That was the promise. The land and the, the fact that it flowed with milk and honey and it was good for crops and all this stuff. This was the promise of God to the people of God. And when the land would produce, he says, goes on to say in verse 12, then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land. See, the nations will see uh, the blessing. And then they would understand what God is doing in those people. And then uh, this nation here, again, the nations, the goyim. See, he's making a point. The goyim will see the people that used to be goyim, or used to be my people, but are now acting like they're everybody else. He's just compared the two, kind of slapped them around a little bit, knocked them a bit off their high horse. The promise is there if they bring the tithes and the offerings into the storehouse. Now, here's where some of you will say, but that's Old Testament, Michael. We're New Testament. That's true, we are. Let me make a couple of points to you. One, in the New Testament, the tithe is never renounced. At no point does anyone say, okay, don't tithe anymore. As a matter of fact, Jesus encouraged the tithe. The very time, he spoke a lot about money, spoke, spoke more about money than he did heaven or hell. Uh, the very time he could have said, don't tithe, he didn't. Matthew 23, uh, Pharisees were... were bragging about how good they were and and Jesus tells them you know what you tithe on the smallest amounts the the mint and the cumin and in the 2 300 BC uh, era they they actually quantified how much of your spices you are supposed to tithe so we are talking about literally grains they were tithing oh I've got 
uh, a teaspoon of, of, of cumin. Well, I've got to tie the tenth of that teaspoon. There you go, God. Aren't I good? And he says, you, you brag about that. You are so uh, interested in that. You're so focused on these weightier, or these, these, these minutia, uh, the minutia of the law, but you ignore the weightier matters, love, loving each other, the relationships that you're supposed to have. And at the end of verse 23 of Matthew chapter 23, he says, you should not ignore the, the, uh, the latter while you are right to do the former. Say it another way, tithing is good. Yes, continue to tithe, but don't think you're good and on, on your way just because you've done good things. Do the more important things or the, the fuller, fulfill the fuller part of the law. We'll talk about that a little bit more anyway, I mean, in a few minutes. So the tithe's never announced. Jesus actually encouraged it, but he actually encouraged generosity. Paul, and we're going to look at a couple of places in the New Testament over the weeks where Paul encouraged generosity. The tithe was never mentioned specifically, but he says, give beyond your means or above what you, uh, are, you think you are able. Give more. What is this? Okay, so Michael, if he doesn't say tithe and, and, and generosity is the goal, what does that look like? How, do we, how are you getting there, Michael? Well, Jesus said, don't murder. Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't murder. Because the Ten Commandments say don't murder, right? Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, don't hate. Because hatred in your heart is murder. So we have the standard, and Jesus ramped up the standard. He said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You had the standard, and Jesus ramped up the standard. You, you tithe mint and cumin, he tells the Pharisees, but don't forsake love. You have the standard, tithing, but ramp up the standard. Give more than just your stuff. Give your heart and your love. So I think it's a very easy application to take the Old Testament passage and put it into New Testament times and say, tithe, don't neglect the standard but do more than the standard give more give generously over that but but let's not get off too far in the new testament because we're talking about malachi chapter 3 verses 7 and 12 so we need to see what it says and how it applies today god's new covenant with us is not based on the land it is based on the church in the Old Testament, land equaled the symbol of the Old Testament covenant. So, when the land didn't produce, God was judging the people. This is our promise. This is how we as a people, we as a nation exist in the land. And so if the land isn't doing what God said it would do, produce for us, it would be our home, it would uh, flow with milk and honey, then there's something wrong with the covenant, something wrong with the relationship. In the New Testament, the church is the symbol of the covenant. This is the promise. You will be my church. You will be my kingdom. So when there is something wrong in the church, there is something wrong with the relationship. There is something wrong with the covenant. And God is saying to us, there is something wrong with the covenant when you do not give. The reality for Judah 
at this point in time with Malachi is the reality, is a picture of our own reality as a church. We are not blessed because we are not obedient. Verse 7, I think we can apply quickly to our churches today and say it has been the church's way to turn from God by not tithing and giving as we should. And I mentioned a few reasons why uh, a couple of minutes ago. Some of us tithe out of revenge. Some of us uh, tithe by saying, uh, or, or don't tithe, because we say, well, uh, I don't like what's going on there. Some of us tithe because we say our, our finances just aren't enough. We can't tithe. We can't give. does not matter what our reasons are. If God has told us to obey and we aren't, then there will be judgment on us for our disobedience. It has been the church's way to turn from God by not tithing and giving as they should, but verse 7 is clear, repentance is possible. Verse 8 tells us clearly that withholding tithes and offering is the result of an idolatrous heart. When we say we are going to hold on to our money because we know better than God does about what we should do with our money, we are being idolatrous. We are putting our desires before God. It happens when you don't tithe out of revenge. When you say, I don't like what's going on there, so I'm not going to tithe, but I'm still going to show up, you're treating your tithe like a membership due. You don't buy your uh, influence at a church. You don't pay for the right to do things at a church. You don't pay for the right to get upset or to yell or to throw things or to do anything cause division in the church. When you do that, you are putting your desires before God and you are, uh, and this is from, or the result of rather, an idolatrous heart. It's what we see in the passage in Malachi. It's what we see in a church, in our church today. Verse 9 tells us clearly that our church suffers under a curse when we don't tithe, when our people do not tithe. And that's what he tells them here. You're in a curse in verse 9. You're, under, you're, you're suffering under a curse, yet you don't realize it. You're still robbing me. You're suffering because you are not being obedient, but you're blaming everything in the world except your disobedience to the tithe. Now, Am I going to stand here and tell you the only reason we're not growing as a church is because some of us don't tithe? No, I'm not going to tell, us, tell you that's the only reason. I will tell you that is part of the reason. And I think that is clear from Scripture. When our church members don't tithe, we can't reach the people we need to. We don't have the resources to do it. When our church members don't tithe, we can't fund the ministries that we should. Forget the ones we want to. We can't do the things we should be doing when we don't tithe. When we don't tithe like we should, we don't grow numerically or evangelistically. Because God says, bring the, store, bring the tithe and the offerings into the storehouse and see if I don't pour out a blessing on you. Remember, we're not a land. Our promise, our covenant is not that our, we'll make more money at our jobs if we give to Jesus if we give to the church. This is where health and wealth preachers go wrong because we are not people of the land. Our covenant, our promise with God is not dependent on whether our crops grow. 
Our covenant with God, our promise from God, is that if we are obedient as a people, the church, then our church will grow. That our church will be fruitful. That our church will be a blessing to the land because we, as people of the church, will be producing fruit. The promise is we will produce fruit as a church, which the fruit of the Spirit, of course, we know love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We know those. But the real fruit of being a church on fire for the Lord is souls coming to know Jesus. That's the fruit. So if we are not doing what we should do in obedience, and we look around and we say, why isn't our church reaching people that we should? Duh! We're not doing what we should in obedience. God is not blessing the fruit of our covenant, of our promise, of our land, because we are not being obedient to him. This is why, and this is a rabbit I'm not going to chase for long, but this is why 2 Chronicles 7.14 does not apply to the United States of America. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray on and on, I will heal their land. We're not a people of land. The United States is not God's nation. The people of God is the church. So if his people, the church, will humble themselves and pray, he will heal their land. He will heal their church. And then we, of course, yes, will be a blessing to our nation, but we will be a blessing to every nation. If every church in every nation would pray and humble themselves and repent, he would heal that church, and that church would be a blessing. If we, as a church who currently suffers under a curse of no fruit or little fruit, would be obedient in our giving, we would see blessing in our church. And in our land, we see the curse. Some of us see the curse and we double down. Back up, please, ma'am. One more. We see the curse, but we double down. We look around and we say, Well, this church isn't doing anything. I'm not going to give anymore. My toe hurts. I'm going to cut it off. My nose, is, I, I, my nose doesn't like my face, so I'm going to cut it off cut your nose off to spite your face but that's what we do we look around we see this church is doing what needs to do i'm going to hold my money back and god says because you're holding your money back i'm cursing your church you think you're fixing the problem you're making it worse by withholding obedience and folks your amount isn't the issue some of you think i can't tithe because i don't have a lot of money or you think my little bit of tithe that he's talking about isn't going to make that big of a difference. Whether you're withholding it because you don't think you can or whether you're holding it, withholding it because you don't want to give it for whatever reason. What did Jesus do with two loaves, or five loaves and two fish? Fed 5,000 people. So you're 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, if it's your 10%, if it is your obedience, if it is your 10% plus your generosity, God will take that further than you ever thought it could go. I love that video. Those few dollars they put in the plate. And they fund a Sunday school room. And they feed homeless people. And what gets me is when they give those Bibles to those people who hunker down when they hear somebody coming because they think somebody's going to kill them for their faith. And out of the plate come Bibles. Every dollar you give does all of those things partially because we give to the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm not going to get into all that this morning. But everything we give does some of that. So it does not matter what amount you give. It does not matter how much you think you can or can't. 
if we are obedient, God will bless our church. If you are obedient, God will provide your need. God will take care of you. I'm not going to tell you you're going to get rich because you give 10%. I'm going to tell you that you will have what you need every week. I know it from my own life. I know it. I can remember one month. Jamie was a year and a half old. We lived in Houston in an apartment. There was one month I decided we could not afford to tithe. There was too much month and not enough money. And so I didn't tithe. And you know what? At the end of the month, there was still too much month and not enough money. And I said, nah, I ain't doing that again next month. And I think it was like March and April. I remember it that clearly. I know it was in the spring. That April, I said, forget it. Etta was working full-time. I was working part-time trying to finish up seminary. We were, things were tight. And I said in April, it ain't going to happen again. We're tithing. That month, there was more money than month. Wasn't a lot of money. We didn't go to Hawaii that month or anything crazy. But we had what we needed because we were faithful even with our little. And now for one more moment, I'm going to address those who would withhold their tithe because they don't like what's going on in a church. If you don't like what's going on in a church, to the extent that you cannot give to that church, find a church you can give to and go to that church. Because if there is something ungodly going on at this church, if there is heresy being taught or preached, if there are things going on that should never go on in a church, I don't care what church it is, you don't need to be in that church anyway. If it is against God's word, against God's will, you should get out. But if it's your preference, and you're treating your tithe like a membership due, there are churches out there that maybe fit your preference better, and that you can give freely, and you can be a part of that church's obedience to God, and he will bless that church by your presence and by your giving. But if you have no other reason than I just don't like this that's going on, I'm telling you, you are doubling down on the curse and you are encouraging the curse by your disobedience. Verses 10 through 12, tithe and give and see what happens. Church members, family, brothers and sisters, tithe and give and see what happens at this church not the only obedience we need to make but is it is most assuredly one of the most important ones that we need to make as a church theologian by the name of William Greathouse said material prosperity and physical health do not invariably accompany faithfulness to God but spiritual health and prosperity do I can't promise that if you give money you're gonna get healed and you're gonna get rich but I do promise if you give as God commands, as you give as the Bible tells us to, we and you, we as a community and you as an individual, because that's the way it works in a church, the community experiences what the individuals experience, we will experience spiritual health and prosperity. In the Old Testament, when there were periods of revival and reform, the evidence is very clear that one of the things that was going on at the time was the people were giving their tithes faithfully and abundantly. When the people withdrew from that, there was, there was no revival. There was no reform. Now, which one caused the other or the other caused the first one? Don't know. But when there was revival, there was giving. But since Jesus, or since God said, test me in this, I'm going to go with, 
if we give, if we are obedient, we will see revival in our church. That's the way I'm heading. He doesn't say, I'm going to bless you, so you'll give. He says, give in obedience and see that I open the floodgates of heaven and pour out uh, blessings on you. Again, let me reiterate, is tithing our only issue? No, but it is one of them. And it is likely the easiest to fix. Some of you need to bump your, your giving. You give four, five, six percent. Maybe you don't even get a percentage at all. You just give a few bills that are in your wallet. Do the math. Ten percent's not hard to figure out of whatever number you make every month. If you're not giving because you're angry about something, well, pray about what you're angry for. Or pray about what you're angry about and give so the curse is lifted. And who knows how that might mean the curse is lifted. If you don't like me, maybe if you'll start giving, I'll leave. I don't know how it's going to work. But who knows? Worth a shot, right? What you going to lose? And if you're already tithing, if you're already giving, I'm not asking you to give more. But I am asking you to go to Scripture and go to the Lord and ask, what is He asking you to do? I'll leave you with one last quote. Raymond Calkins theologian from turn of the century and I'm talking about 1800s, 1900s he said the loose way in which many members wear their plain obligations to the church is a scandal which enormously weakens its influence and I defined a couple of words here because I had to for me desultory or haphazard church attendance neglect of public worship Failure to identify oneself with the church's work and mission in the world. Niggardly, and no, I'm not making a racial uh, epithet. That's from Sweden in the 1300s. Niggardly or stingy gifts. Lack of all personal interest and loyalty. These are the ways in which the laity of today rob God of the honor to which he is entitled. <laughs> Proof right there. The giving is only a part of the way that we rob God. But I still say it's one of the easiest that can be fixed. Now, of course, the invitation time, the time of response, I need to ask church members, what about your giving? What needs to change about your giving today? How do you need to give obediently? That's what we're talking about, giving obediently. How do you need to do that? If you don't know Jesus, forget about the giving part. I ain't worried about how much money you give. I'm worried about you giving your heart to Jesus. We'll, we'll talk about those things later. Because there's the most important offering you must give. And that offering is your life. See, the gospel is clear that God is holy and just and he will judge sin. We see this in Malachi. It's judgment on their sin. He will do it in, uh, 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 in the temporal world, but he will also do it in the eternal world. He is holy and just and he will judge sin. Go ahead and flip forward, please, ma'am. Uh, the problem is we are willfully sinful and fallen and we're de destined to everlasting torment and judgment because of our sin and we do have to make a peace offering with God but the reality is he made a peace offering with us first see Jesus came the perfect son of God sinless did not deserve to die, yet he took our sin and our place on the cross. He died for everyone, 
That means everybody here. That means everybody that's watching maybe live on Facebook. That means everybody who may watch this video later on or may listen to it on the radio or on TV or who knows where and when he died for all of us. But he didn't just die, he rose three days later to prove that he was a conqueror over sin. Today, you need to repent of your sin. You need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Trust him alone for salvation by believing in him, not by trusting in your works, and then live for him. Forget, unbeliever, anything I've said about money this morning and focus on your heart. Are you a Christian today? Have you trusted Christ for your salvation? If you have not, Make that your offering. That's what we want to see in the plate. Not your $100 bills. We want to see that you have given your heart to Jesus today. Pray with me. Father, we thank you. Let you still allow us to repent. Though we may be in the midst of judgment because of disobedience, we know that if we return to, uh, to you, you will return to us. And we will see the joy of our salvation again. We will see our, our, our land, our, our promise, our covenant, our church producing fruit again. So Lord, we pray for the obedience of each individual. But God, most importantly, for an individual's life, we pray for an offering this morning of a heart, a soul that has not followed and trusted in salvation through Jesus does that today. Lord, move in a mighty way in this place. Speak to every one of us and how we must respond to this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what's your decision this morning? What do you need to do? Do you need to accept Christ? Do you need to make that, that initial offering, that first offering, that most important offering? Maybe you've done that and you need to be baptized. Uh, we are having our discovery class again. I need to know if you want to come and, and take part in that to learn what it is to be a church member. Maybe ask some questions about salvation that you've never gotten cleared up. So you can be baptized November 5th. We're doing that. Uh, I think we've got 11 people so far. We're baptizing that day. Uh, what, what is your decision? Maybe it's something you need to bring not to an altar but to Jesus. And you want to pray it up here. You want to change your geography because you want to change, you want to feel that change in your heart. I don't know what your decision is today, but we've got time now to make it. Let's stand, let's sing, and let's do business with God today.